a delight to be with you again this morning. And I'm undertaking um, a psalm that is so mysterious, but one that fits perfectly into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is particularly true because we hear these words, these first words from the cross as our Savior is dying. So those of us who have stood at the foot of the cross and watched with our Lord through those painful and uh, grueling three hours of dying, dying for the sins of the world, we are delighted to hear these words from Psalm 22. And I'm going to try to open up this psalm to you in a way that will help us understand how this psalm fits into the the gospel. Probably some of us have read this psalm and we've, we've asked the question, how could God do this? How could he forsake his own son? Now, I, I want to look at this psalm under two particular topics, lament and praise. That's what the psalm is really made up of, lament and praise. And I think that we can safely say that these are the the two extremes of our own lives, the two poles of our lives. There are are a lot of degrees in between, of course. We know that because we have, some of us have experienced a lot of those in-between stages between lament and praise. We... But we have on on the other side of life's emotional spectrum, too, the wonderful experience of praise to God. Whenever things seem to fall into place, we're so happy, and hopefully we again have told God, Lord, you have been so good, and I praise you. This psalm contains both lament and praise. And interestingly, there is, a, there is an interpretive principle that is used when we interpret the Old Testament quotations in the New Testament. It's called a metalepsis. It's a, a word you may, not, you may not be acquainted with, but it simply means that when a New Testament writer or when anyone in the New Testament, in this case, our Lord Jesus Christ, quotes Psalm 22, quotes verse 1, that he has the whole psalm in mind. He's not just recognizing that God has forsaken him, but he's filled with praise, as the psalm is. So this psalm contains both lament and praise, and I want to... Look at the cry of lament first. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if we look closely at the literary ways the psalm carries out this theme of God forsakenness, it's really beautiful. And the teacher in me just cannot talk about the psalms without breaking them down into their their um, components. And David has a way of writing his praises and laments that 
keys us into the lament or the praise, whatever is going on. And he starts this psalm with the lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then, as any good poet should do, he creates the atmosphere for that lament as he continues to write the psalm. And as you read through the psalm, you become so aware that uh, God, he does really feel like God has forsaken him. There is no answer, verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. There is no one to help, verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. There is no water. I am poured out like water, verses 14 and 15, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. There is no strength. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. You see how, the, you see how he paints this vacuous picture of his God-forsaken world as he continues to write the psalm. Now, if that's not enough for us, David puts the point in another way. He spells out his abandonment by God. Verses 6 and 7. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. Someone in one of my pastorates a few years ago uh, remarked in a Bible study we were having that she was really upset because the Bible calls us worms. Well, if you look at these occurrences of this term in the Psalms or in Scripture as a whole, God never uses this term to apply to us. It's always the psalmist himself who is confessing his feelings. The psalmist was at one of those low points of self-esteem, and it has a lot to do with what other people were saying about him and how he felt about himself. He is the one who confesses that he is a worm, and these are not from God's lips. One of the many words of wisdom that I have learned from the Psalms is we should be careful not to allow other people to shape our self-image. Now, there are some things that go on in our lives that we can't, we can't resist. But I think that the, the psalmist is, is, in a sense, troubled by the fact that so many things have happened to him in, in his life that it has really affected his self-image. For example, the psalmist's enemies had bullied him, and he calls them by that name. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. He's not talking about animals. He's talking about people. I was bullied as a kid, bullied because of my faith, and I understand what he's saying here. Further, he believes he is going to die. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. No wonder the psalmist can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If I asked how many of you have ever felt like that, I'm sure I would see a sizable number of hands go up. Some may not have ever experienced that kind of uh, that kind of forsakenness in 
your lives. But if you haven't ever asked this question, God, why have you forsaken me? Some of us have had those experiences and those moments of life when we could have asked the question if we had allowed ourselves to. Psalm 22 also contains praises. And we're moving to the second category of the psalm. This is really one of the wonderful things about this psalm. The psalmist plants ideas here and there that tell us he knows that God is somewhere in the shadows, somewhere on the margins of life. The most striking of these statements is found in verse 3. Now, I've given, uh, uh, I think on the, on the, uh, the slide, you have King James and RSV, both. I, I give you both of those, but, but I think the NIV is really not the best translation here, so uh, I've um, skipped that one and uh, actually used ESV. RSV says, "You yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. King James' version says, Be thou, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Israel's praises were words. And David is saying that the Lord lives in Israel's praises. It sounds very close to the way John expresses the truth of the incarnation, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have a very similar idea here. That is, I think the psalmist is anticipating the incarnation. It's a, a, a kind of shadow of the incarnation here in Psalm 22, but when we read John's statement in uh, John 1, we certainly have the feeling that John was in touch with the psalmist, and the psalmist was giving John the foundation, helping him to, at least to give him the foundation of his view of in, the incarnation. Now, it's this, It's a kind of step in the direction of the incarnation. There are some times when the Old Testament talks about the realities of God's incarnate life in Jesus of Nazareth when they are not so much a prophecy as they are um, an idea pointing in the direction of the incarnation. God takes up residence in word, in praises, and word becomes flesh. Or to put it another way, we become what we say. Our words are a window into who we are. Can you imagine forming some wise and powerful statement with your lips and tongue and vocal cords, and as the words leave your mouth, they become a human person? That's one for the TV animators, I suppose. Think of it this way. We say something very profound, and when the words leave our lips, we see those letters take, a, take on human characteristics, something like the vegetales, if you remember those. 
it's not just the sounds of the letters G and O and D hanging in the air, but it is a visual image of God appearing before us. The G and the O and the D combine to make a human form, and the form begins speaking. The doctrine of the Incarnation is a very mysterious doctrine. And it's really impossible for me to open this up in ways that we fully understand this mystery. There are mysteries about the gospel that we can't fully understand here, and I have an idea that we're not going to fully comprehend them in heaven. We're going to better understand But God is always going to be a mystery to us. If that were not the case, he would not be God. So I'm simply trying to illustrate how God inhabits the praises of Israel. So when you hear Israel's praises, you have an image of God. Now, let me ask you, if you're looking for a house, what kind of structure, what kind of architecture... What kind of design would attract you? A very modern-looking building, a Dutch colonial style, a ranch house, an English tutor? Now, let's put it in terms of language. If you're looking to take up residence in words, let's give our imagination a wide range. Would we look for a lament, for example? A cry of abandonment, like we have in verse 1. Or would we look for curses in profane words in which to make our home? Do you get the meaning? Let's go back to an early, an, the early analogy of vegetables. If you became a vegetable and started walking around and taking, talking with vegetable, with a, which, which vegetable would you like to be? Would you like to be... A carrot, or a green bean, or a stalk of celery? So, it is uh, very important, I think, that we understand that God has a way of, of dealing with us, of revealing himself in the praises of Israel. He took up residence in Israel's praises, Israel's praises of God. I certainly think that would be preferable to the lamentive cry of verse 1 or a string of profane words or a joke or a bit of humor. God, says David, inhabits Israel's praises. That's a good dwelling place. The kind of place I would expect God to choose if he's going to take up residence in, in a word. It's astronomically significant that God did not take up residence in Israel's laments. At this point, we ought to define what we mean by praise, I suppose. Klaus Westermann, an Old Testament scholar, defines praise as joy expressing itself in speech. You and I can understand that. Have you ever seen a beautiful sunrise or sunset? Rhonda and I were going to our daughter's the other morning to sit with our grandson, and the 
sunrise was absolutely beautiful. We had a neighbor a few years ago who would sometimes call Rhonda, and Rhonda would sometimes call her and say, have you seen the sunset? There's something about joy that just trips over itself trying to get out and express itself. And most of the time, it wants to express itself to someone else. Joy is the most unselfish emotion that we humans experience. It has to be shared. In fact, C.S. Lewis said that praise is the completion of the enjoyment. I I think that uh, we understand that. Praise is not complete unless we share it with somebody. You, You know that feeling. What a beautiful landscape or a lovely moonlight night. But it's not so beautiful if we can't share it with somebody. We feel like we have not completed the emotion. We haven't finished the transaction if we can't share it with someone. Now, let's step back and look at this verse from another angle. David immediately follows up the lament of verses 1 through 2 with the statement, But thou art holy, O thou that inhabits the praises of Israel. What does God what does God mean by praise the praises of Israel? He means his presence. It means that God is near to those who are praising him. If you think God has forsaken you, then start praising him. C.S. Lewis says that pleasure is being praised, well, pleasure of being praised is not prideful. We, we like to be praised when we have done something good and admirable. Some people can handle it differently. Some people are virtually embarrassed when other people praise them. Some take it with stride and say, thank you, and go on. Some take it as an encouragement because they need the praise to make them feel better about themselves, to lift up their sagging self-image. Some people just need a diet of praise because their ego is so hungry to be fed. It's just an ego trip for them. Now, we can analyze all of these reactions and sort them out as unacceptable and acceptable, but we don't have to do that at this time. What I'm getting around to saying is that God is not an egotist because he commands us to praise him. If I had lived in J.S. Bach's day and had written him a letter telling him how beautiful and inspiring his sheep may safely graze, it really is, I would have told the truth. And actually, Bach knew his music was beautiful and inspiring. He knew how gifted he was. And really, as far as I know, he tried to praise God for that. He was not egotistical. He tried to praise God for his great gift. In fact, he signed his compositions S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. 
It would have been false humility, however, if Bach had written back and said, oh, thanks for the compliment. But that's just a little ditty I put together on my way to the church Sunday morning. Really, it's not so good. When he knew that in his heart, sheep may safely graze, is one of the most beautiful hymns in our Christian uh, our Christian gathering of hymns. When we praise God and acknowledge his power and strength and love and mercy, he knows himself very well. And he receives our praise because he deserves it. He knows who he is. God has no false humility. He never responds with, oh, you don't need to say that. It was just a trifle when I parted the Red Sea and let the Israelites walk across on dry ground. I really, I was really not that, it's really not that big a thing when I raised Jesus from the dead. I just moved a finger and up he came. In terms of his indescribable power, That might be true, but he would never speak disparagingly of his own work because he knows who he is. He knows how great is his power and how deep his love. He deserves our praise. He's not an egotist for commanding us to praise him. Nor is it egotistical talk when we praise Bach for his oratorios and Rembrandt for his lovely paintings. They deserve it. If they denied what they did was good, when in fact both we and they know it is, then that would have been false on their side. But there's nothing egotistical about, egotistical about praising those people, praising those things that deserve our acclamation. There's nothing egotistical about praising God who is worthy of all praise. That's what the 24 elders before God's throne recognize when they cast their crowns before the Father and say, Worthy art thou, our God and Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and by thy will they existed and were created. Now, there's another angle from which I want to look at this verse. That's the human angle. Our praises are not absolutely pure. Sometimes they are tinged with ulterior motives. We say good things because we want something back. That's certainly true in our human relationships, and I suspect that many of us are not beyond trying that trick on God telling him how we appreciate all of his good work, when we really are getting ready to ask for his work in our lives, something we really want. Even our most genuine praises are probably tinted with shades of insincerity. They are human and rise from human lips and from human motives. And we can never be absolutely sure that they are 100% pure. Or even if our praises are totally sincere, they still are marred by our lack of understanding of the one we praise. Now, look at what God does. 
He inhabits our praises. Does that say something to us? Doesn't that hint at one of the greatest truths of Scripture at the Incarnation, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us? That's the great truth Psalm 22.3 points us to, toward. Our human flesh is always tinged with our sinful nature. Now, when God became flesh in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he didn't recreate human flesh in his pre-fallen innocence and inhabit that. Rather, he took upon himself our sin. He became sin for us. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, Paul said in Romans 8.3. God didn't sterilize our praises and then live in them. He took up residence in them like they were, tainted by sin, tinged by inferior motives, so he could clean them up from the inside out, purify them. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. The word became flesh. And to all who believed him and believed in his name, to them he gave power to become the children of God. You see how close Psalm 22.3 is to the Christian truth of God's incarnation in human flesh? To redeem us, to cleanse us from our sin, and to purify our praises. Christ had no sin. But the incarnate Son took upon himself our sin. He bore it, not performed it, so he could be like us. Rather, he bore it in such a way that we could be like him. I think something more can be said here. Praise should become the centerpiece of our worship, the essence of our lives. Many of us don't spend much time praising God. If we did, we would find that we had discovered the secret of happiness. Now, mind you, I'm not saying that it's a panacea that will magically turn our world around, but it will restore our equilibrium. It will put us on the right wavelength with God. For some of us, our prayers are mostly, give me prayers, give me this and give me that. They're grocery lists of wants and wishes and certainly genuine needs. And God loves to read our lists, uh, uh, us to read our lists out in his presence. He invites us to. He wants to hear them. He wants to hear us call them by name. But we need to learn some diplomacy at the throne of grace. We should walk into the throne room, or we shouldn't walk into the throne room and start out by saying, here's my list. Do you want to hear it, Lord? Yes, when we go into the throne room of prayer, we ought to take our list with us. We don't have to hide it behind our backs and and surprise the Lord with it. But we balance our list with an inventory of things that God has done for us. We need to go all the way back to God's marvelous works in history. It doesn't hurt. It's quite appropriate to praise the Lord that he created the world, that he created us. Praise him that he led Israel out of Egypt, that he preserved them during the exile. He brought them to safety in the land of promise. 
We need to go all the way back to the first century and praise God that he gave us Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and the church and the Holy Spirit to empower us. In fact, we need to recognize the power of praise like the psalmist does in Psalm 149. Praise was the power that could change us and change the world. The psalmist says, may the praise of God be in our mouths and a double-edged sword in, in, in their, their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. The psalmist, I think, was saying, the praise of God becomes our weapon. We don't need the weapons of war to praise God and to get God to do his work with us. We just need to praise him. That's our weapon. If God's church joined together in a chorus of praise, in a universal unity of praise, I wonder what would happen in the Middle East today. I wonder what God could do in our lives, how he could fill the vacuum of our need if we really praised him. Now, to conclude my meditation on Psalm 22, I want us to go to the cross and stand there with Jesus' mother, Mary, and with his beloved disciple, John. And I want us to listen very carefully to Jesus' desolate cry from the cross, from this song. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now remember, Jesus is dying, and he is probably, with all of his strength, pushing himself up enough to get enough air into his lungs that he could say these words. Just exactly how might we have heard our Lord's belabored, belabored words? He could have put the emphasis upon the direct address to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that would stress his relationship to the deity. It was my God. It was the Savior's God who had forsaken him. And John Calvin, in his commentary, notes that the psalmist is not, uh, is not cut loose from God because he calls him my God. Now, or Jesus might have asked the question like this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The emphasis then would have been upon the reason behind the Savior's God-forsaken condition, on the why. Or our Lord could have posed this piercing question by shifting the emphasis to the pronoun, you, O God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Of all persons, it was you, not anyone else, but you. And that would be the shocker. There's another possibility that the Savior could have emphasized with the verb. Why have you forsaken me? In this case, it meant that of all things the Father could have done to, to him, he had to forsake him. Or the Savior's question could have been phrased with the emphasis on the other personal pronoun in the question. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? The emphasis then would fall would have fallen on the Savior's identity, the Son of God, God's own Son, the Savior whom the Father had sent to the world to redeem us. That would sound like God had short-circuited the mission he had sent his Son on. I think we could write an essay on each one of these emphases, but I'm inclined to believe that they all are intended. And our essay, if it should undertake such an assignment, ought to cover each of the emphases. I think about Isaiah's statement that the suffering uh, servant, Jesus Christ, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. This is what we call the vicarious atonement. This is God suffering for us, suffering in our place. When Isaiah, while Isaiah doesn't say he, that the suffering serpent was forsaken for us, that does seem to me to be one of the ways we should look at this mysterious statement from the cross. That in the, in the absence of Isaiah ever putting on the table, God's forsaken, forsakenness on our behalf. Uh, the psalmist has done it for us. Elizabeth Baird Browning captured that idea in her beautiful little poem called "On Cooper's Grave." Cooper was one of the one of the hymn writers during her time, and she writes this beautiful poem in which she calls the Jesus word calls Jesus words from the cross echoless because no one would ever utter that cry again no one would ever need to utter that cry again no one would ever have to utter that cry again these are her words deserted God could separate from his own essence, rather. And Adam's sins have swept between the righteous son and father. Yet once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from the Holy's lips and his own creation that of the lost, no son should use those words of desolation, that earth's worst fringes marring hope should mar not earth's fruition, and I on Cooper's grave should see his rapture in a vision. So we don't have to say those words. We don't have to, in our... Desolation, we know that God has forsaken us because has not forsaken us because He is present with us. He is inhabiting our praises. So when we feel like God has forsaken us, we can move into praising Him and recognize that He is with us. Let's pray. God and Father, we thank you for these words of your servant David.
And we know that there are times in our own lives when we feel forsaken, but even if we read these words, even if we say them out of our own sense of desolation, they are still echoless because your son was forsaken on our behalf. And we never need or never have to say those words in the same desolation of spirit that our Savior found himself in on the cross. Now I pray for this congregation, for your future work in this life, in their lives and, in, and through their lives, and pray that you will let them know that even in their searching for your will for the future, that you have not forsaken them, and let them break out in the praises of Israel. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.